Well, good morning. I should have done this last week, but I'm going to teach you guys a little Chinese this morning. This is not my text, but uh, whenever I open the service back home, uh, we always open up by saying good morning in Chinese, which is, this is so easy. I'm going to tell you this, and I want you guys to use it, okay? I want you guys to open the service with this. <laughs> say it to one another. It's very easy. It's zao an. Can you say that? So I say zao an, and you say, ah, oh, good, excellent. All right. And if you, for the evening, am I, am I messing it up, Chen? Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> In the evening service, you can say wan an. Now, I mean, both those mean morning peace and evening peace, literally. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful greeting. So practice saying that. You can, whenever you say good morning to one another, you can remember us and pray for us. Uh, please do pray. We uh, we really enjoy being with you. I'm, you know, I'm just excited. I get to preach to you again. I get the nod from the bullpen from the bullpen. The manager, you know, bringing the lefty. So I'm here. Um, I'm thrilled to be able to do this. I'm excited to be able to preach uh, for you guys again and look at the text together. But I want to be home and with our people. I miss them. And I love you guys, but but we love them too and we want to be with them. So please pray and, and pray that we would just be satisfied with God's will. Or we don't, you know, if it's another week, uh, that's God's will, that's fine. But we want to leave on Wednesday, so pray for us. We're going to look at today at a picture of grace found in this passage in Luke 22, verses 24 through 30. Now, I know because I was here that it's not been too long since you guys finished the book of Luke with Pastor Mike, but it would probably still be good because it's been a while. Now you're in Acts to orient ourselves to what's going on in this passage. At the beginning of Luke 22, we're told that this is the time of the Passover and that Judas had just agreed with the chief priests and officers to betray Jesus. And then comes one of the most important events in all of Scripture, and that is the inauguration of the New Covenant and the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus has in the verses preceding ours just in, in effect announced that he is about to fulfill his, uh, his mission and accomplish the redemption of all those who would believe in him. And the disciples' response, which we will look at in a few minutes, is to debate about which one of them would be the greatest. There's a danger for us as we read this passage, and for me, too. And the danger is letting ourselves get drawn into thinking that this passage is primarily about the disciples and their argument, primarily about their wrong thinking and the wrong actions that result from it. Were the disciples boneheaded? Yes. Were they as... As Jesus says in Luke 24, 25, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Absolutely. Was Jesus grieved by his disciples' hardness of heart? He had to have been. And could we spend this entire sermon talking about them and what failures they were? Yeah, we could do that. But we have to remember what the point of this passage this gospel and the entire Bible is, and it's not primarily or solely about human failure, but about God's redemption of his people. If we focus on the actions of the disciples, we may gain a better understanding of what they did wrong, but we would miss the heart of what this passage is showing us. There's one possibility when you teach or preach this passage 
and many people take this, and that's to highlight the nature of true Christian leadership and service and the rewards that God promises those who faithfully follow him. And that would not necessarily be wrong because there are certainly, there are certainly truths about true servant leadership found here. But I believe there's a larger and more important and more impactful truth for us in this passage. And my goal as we look at this text this morning is really quite simple. I just want to make a lot of Jesus. I want to make much of our Savior. I want to highlight the compassion and the grace of our Lord. Of course, this is going to involve understanding how bad his disciples are. And by extension, how bad you and I are. Of course, there are lessons for us to learn about serving here. And there are mindsets and actions that have to change in each one of us. But I don't believe that's the main point here, and I don't want us to leave here today thinking it is. Jesus is the main point. He's the hero. He's the focal point of this passage. And he's the one who's doing some truly shocking things here, and it's his story first and foremost. Speaking of this interaction between Jesus and the disciples, one of my favorite old dead guys, J.C. Ryle, said this, Never had a master such poor, weak servants as believers are to Christ, but never had servants such a compassionate and tender master as Christ is to believers. So we want to focus on Jesus this morning. However, on our way to get to Jesus We need to move first through Satan and his role in this passage. And then the disciples and the part that they play. And finally, we'll end by seeing the grace and compassion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we'll look first at Satan's persistent opposition. Secondly, at the disciples' distressing disunity. And finally, at the Savior's gracious response. So let's look first then at Satan's persistent opposition this is nothing new from the beginning of creation satan has opposed the work of god and he has never let up in the gospels we see satan's persistent opposition to jesus and opposition to the disciples as they learn from and minister with him perhaps the most obvious early instance of satan's opposition in the book of luke is found in luke chapter 4 which is the temptation of Jesus. There's actually an earlier opposition to this from the book of Matthew when when Herod attempts to annihilate Jesus. And we can even go further, a little further back than that and see Satan's opposition as, as Joseph contemplates divorcing Mary, which would have just upended the whole thing at the very beginning. So in Luke 4, we have this early opposition. After Jesus had resisted everything Satan threw at him, Luke tells us, that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. Well, guess what? Right now, our chapter is that opportune time. And don't miss it, Satan is all over this section. He's mentioned explicitly twice, and at least two times his presence is implied. Earlier in Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, we're told that uh, Luke, that Judas, as Judas began his betrayal, that Satan entered Judas. It says, And Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. 
So he consented and sought opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. So see right there, this explicit mention, Satan is opposing the work of Jesus by, by helping one of the disciples betray him. He's also present in our passage today, bent on creating disunity, tempting the disciples to make a grab for position and power in the midst of Jesus' passion. He's present after our text in verses 31 through 34, accusing the disciples. Jesus says in these verses that Satan has plans for the disciples. He's going to sift them as wheat in hopes of ruining God's redemptive plan. But Jesus says that he has prayed for them, and Satan's plans will backfire as God, in fact, uses them to strengthen his disciples. And then in verses 35 through 38, Satan is present, blinding the disciples. So he's all over this passage. Satan is always and persistently opposing the will of God. Why mention Satan at all? Why even bring him up? Because he's real. His opposition to Jesus is real. And if you're a follower of Jesus, don't don't mistake this or don't fail to realize that his opposition to you is real. And certainly his working against the disciples is evident as we look at verse 24 and see our second point, the disciples distressing disunity. As I mentioned earlier, to really appreciate the disciples distressing disunity, and that's hard to say too many times in a row, we need to understand what's happening in this chapter. The events that Luke describes here for us are pivotal events with eternal consequences, and it is impossible to overstate their importance. Remember, Jesus is only a few short hours away from dying on the cross while carrying the weight of your sin and mine. And when Jesus took the cup of wine and said, this, is, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood, he was in, in effect announcing the single most important event in salvation history. Jesus was saying with that one sentence that the blood he was going to be shed was greater than all the blood that had ever been shed on Israel's altars under the old covenant. Why? Because the blood of the old covenant was insufficient to remove sins. Yes, it could cover them, but it could not remove them. That's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 verses 4 and 11. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. How do we know this? Because if the old covenant sacrifices could remove sins, they would not have needed to be offered over and over and over again. That's what the author of Hebrews says in 10, Hebrews 10.2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The unending repetition of the sacrifices was a proof that they were insufficient to permanently and finally remove sins from those who offered them. In contrast, to those old covenant sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice of himself would, once for all, cover and remove all sin. 
And as Jesus identified his blood with the blood of the new covenant, the disciples' minds would have immediately, I believe, run to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And you can turn there if you can get there quickly enough. I'm, co- I'm confident that their minds would have gone right to Jeremiah 31, which says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I believe their minds would have run to this, but we have no idea how much of this truth would have actually made it into the disciples' minds or how much of it stuck this night. As we'll see, the response of the disciples indicates at the very least they didn't quite get it all. The response shows that they didn't understand the gravity of what Jesus was announcing that night, namely the new and better covenant promised long before. And what was the disciples' response to this earth-shaking announcement that the new covenant was here? Did they praise God? No. No. Praise God. Instead, they began fighting with each other. They began sinning right in front of the one who was going to redeem them. This is, they provided really the perfect illustration of what they needed. They needed those new hearts that God promised in Jeremiah 31. When they begin fighting with each other, really, truthfully, they begin to continue what they started back in verse 23. Where after Jesus had told them that one of them would betray him, verse 23 tells us they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. But now they ratchet things up a notch. Question in verse 23 and dispute in verse 24 from different Greek words. And the the word dispute in 24 maybe has a, a bit of a stronger negative connotation. So they move on from discussing perhaps a little vigorously who would betray Jesus. Which one of us could it be? And discussion turns into a full-out dispute, an argument, a fight. About what? About which one of them should be thought of as the most important. I mean, can you imagine how distressing this was to Jesus? And I mean, it had to be. Because he had just poured himself out. He just revealed the most important thing they could have heard and they don't even acknowledge what he just said. No acknowledgement that he's just said, I'm going to bring in the new covenant. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to replace your heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And they go, let me argue about who's going to be greatest. The sin that that was at the root of the argument between the disciples is the same sin that is at the bottom of our own love of position, our own desire to be preeminent, to have first place when we read this passage and when you've read it in the past maybe you think 
wow, those disciples are awful. How arrogant, how thoughtless of Jesus they are. And maybe you think, like I thought, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that. I want to quote J.C. Ryle again, that dead guy. He says this, ambition, self-esteem, and self-conceit lie deep at the bottom of all men's hearts and often in the hearts where they are least suspected. Thousands who fancy that they are humble cannot bear to see an equal more honored and favored than themselves. Few indeed can be found who rejoice heartily in a neighbor's promotion over their own heads. The quantity of envy and jealousy in the world is a glaring proof of the prevalence of pride. Men would not envy a brother's advancement if they had not a secret thought that their own merit was greater than his. So the root of the argument is pride and a desire for position. But there's something else. This argument is not a new one. This isn't the first time this has happened. This same argument has happened on at least two other occasions. Earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 46 the disciples had the same argument. It says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Additionally, Mark records yet another instance of this kind of power seeking in Mark 10, 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They weren't just asking for good seats. That those are positions of power and authority they were looking for. So we see this is, it wasn't some new argument. This wasn't something that just happened to come up at this moment. It was a deep-rooted heart problem that continued to crop up over and over again. There's something interesting we should note, though, about the timing of all of these Arguments over greatness are posturing for position. All of the times this argument occurs, it is immediately after Jesus speaks of going to the cross. The first time Luke records them having this argument, Jesus had just said to them in Luke 9, 44 to 45, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not, might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Then in the very next verse, they begin to argue about who's going to be the greatest. Mark's recording of James and John's play for power comes immediately after Jesus says in te- chapter 10 of Mark, verses 33 and 34, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John say, could we sit at the right and the left hand? And now the same thing has happened again. Jesus no sooner finishes finishes speaking of the new covenant and his impending betrayal He has spoken words that should have brought to mind the prophecy of Jeremiah. 
And there's no, there's no break between Jesus saying, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed and the disciples' argument. The one follows immediately after the other. Jesus has just said to his disciples, guys, I'm about to die on a cross for you. And I am going to inaugurate the new covenant, the better covenant, where all your sins will be permanently removed from you forever. I'm about to accomplish the focal point of all of human history. And the disciples respond by starting to argue over which one of them is the greatest. It's staggering. So what does Jesus do? What will the holy and righteous God's response be to this outrageous dis- display of pride on the behavior and the behavior of the disciples? Every time I read the following six verses, I am shocked, blown away. I'm floored. I'm flattened by the Savior's gracious response to the disciples. And I hope as we look at them together, you will be too. And it's these six verses and Jesus' response where we want to spend most of our time this morning. Having looked at Satan's persistent opposition and the disciples' distressing disunity, let's focus now on the Savior's gracious response. What would be the expected response? of a righteous, holy God. Imagine with me for a second that you are a parent. If you are a parent, you don't have to imagine much. If you're not yet, you just use your imagination. You sit down with your children to tell them some very bad news. You have a terminal illness that's so bad you only have a few hours or maybe days to live. They hear the news. They look you in the eye. And then they turn to each other and immediately begin arguing about who gets your shoes, who gets the car, who gets all the money you have in the bank, who gets the real estate. How would you feel? Think with me for a second. If you were a parent and that's what your children did in response to that, how would you feel? You'd be heartbroken. You'd be sad. And if you're honest, you'd be a little angry. How, how ungracious you know, you only love me for the things I can. I mean, what? Have I not spent all these years pouring myself into you and the best you can come up with is to argue over things? I know how I'd respond. Much less if I was Jesus, God, the creator of the universe. But how does he respond? How does Jesus respond to this this amazingly ungracious display on the part of the disciples. His first response, found in verses 25 through 27, is to patiently instruct them. They've responded in a way that's almost hard to understand in its thoughtlessness. But Jesus, the gracious and kind Savior, he does not even rebuke them. Instead, he patiently instructs them about how they should see themselves and about the nature of true greatness. He patiently instructs them first with his actions. In response to the arguing of the disciples, Jesus does something here, something to me that is almost unbelievable, or really, forget the almost, it really is unbelievable. It's an event that Luke doesn't record for us, but John does in his gospel. In John chapter 13, verses 3 through 5, this is a very famous, very famous event. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, this is John 13, verse 3, 
and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, please don't allow your appropriate sense of modesty to blunt what Jesus does here. Verse 4 says that he removed his garments, and this is plural in the Greek as well. It appears that he removes everything except for perhaps a loincloth, taking on the attire of a common slave. He wraps himself in a towel that's long enough where some of the slack can be used to dry his disciples' feet. Now, if you read commentators, which every preacher does, and you should too, they all, commentators and preachers differ on when exactly this event occurred in the course of the night's events. That's because the order of the events is, by the different gospel writers isn't always clear when you try to harmonize them. But the majority of commentators I read agreed about when Jesus did this, and I'm inclined to agree with them. Now, if we think that Jesus merely did this as a kind gesture, it will completely blunt the impact and the meaning of what he did here. But in response to their arguing about greatness, Jesus takes on the clothing and the posture of a common house slave and begins, without a word, to wash the dirty, stinking feet of his own disciples. So here's the picture. Jesus has just finished telling the disciples that the the events of tonight and the following days are the events for which all of history has been waiting. He will very soon imminently bring the new covenant. The promises of God in Jeremiah and other places are about to be fulfilled, and all the disciples can think about is which one of them is first. I can picture the scene, and I picture Peter leading the discussion. Hey, John, who was it that said that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God? Oh, yeah, that was me. That was me. Yeah. Or maybe the big three, Peter, James, and John, teamed up against the other lesser disciples. Seriously, Matthew, you're going to be the greatest? You're a tax collector, brother. Not a chance. The rest of you? Nobody's going to even be able to remember your names except for maybe some particularly bright Sunday school students one day. Maybe not even them. And then they all look at Thomas. Well, you'll be remembered, but it won't be anything good. Perhaps James and John teamed up on Peter. Hey, Peter, remember when you had that stupid idea about building the three booths for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses? How did that go? What about the time that Jesus called you Satan? (laughs) Remember the time you sank in the water? Yeah, like you're going to be first, right? And remember, these are the guys that Jesus is going to use to build his church. And what does Jesus do while they're going back and forth about who's going to be the greatest? Disciples are arguing. Jesus quietly gets up, takes off his clothes, puts on the attire of a a common slave, bends down to John's feet as he's reclined at the table and begins washing them. John may be so, so engrossed in the argument that he doesn't quite get what's going on yet. He looks down and he sees his Savior, the creator of the universe, the Lord of all, washing his feet. 
And when he's done washing John's feet, he carefully dries them. And he moves to the next disciple. Can you imagine how quickly the argument ceased? The red faces of embarrassment. Their rabbi, their teacher, their savior is doing the work of a house slave. Work they wouldn't even deign to do themselves. And the argument is over. Well, it's not the only reason for Jesus washing the disciples' feet. His actions are clearly intended to provide a stunning, memorable picture of the lesson he's about to teach them in the following verses. So Jesus first teaches them by his example. And now verses 25 through 27, Jesus teaches them with his words. He speaks to the disciples and teaches them about the nature of true greatness. And he completely redefines it. He redefines greatness as service by, by using two contrasting pictures in his own example. First, he contrasts the behavior of self-serving secular leaders with true greatness in verses 25 and 26. And he, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. What Jesus says here about Gentile kings and rulers reminds the disciples of something they already knew by experience. Secular Gentile leaders were not people who looked out for others first. In fact, they lord their power over them. And they give themselves titles like benefactor. What Jesus describes these leaders doing is exactly what leaders of that day did. Although they were arrogant, they were dictatorial, and they were self-serving, they would still give them titles like, themselves titles like benefactor. And they would do it by seeking to curry public recognition and favor with people regardless of how brutal their other actions were. And Jesus, by the way, here isn't really pointing to especially wicked rulers. He's just pointing out the way that normal, secular rulers govern. They do what they want. They do what will best benefit them. They do everything they can to gain and keep power. And then they posture themselves as doing this for the good of the people they govern. I could just as well have been giving a little treatise on American government there. Or worldwide government, for that matter. Jesus implies by this contrast, by the way, that this is what is in the hearts of the disciples. And so he tells them, not so with you. When Jesus says this, by the way, he isn't saying they are not supposed to lead. Rather, he's saying that their leadership must be distinctly different from the leadership of the world. He's saying that the manner of their leading must undergo a total transformation a transformation of leadership that must begin with a transformation of their hearts and their minds. Each of these 11 men, each of them are in a unique position of spiritual privilege. And it appears to this point that this unique position of privilege has gone to their heads and given them a mindset like the Gentile kings. And Jesus tells them, you must see yourselves differently, not as the greatest, but as the youngest now, when Jesus, well, there's an interesting 
contrast here, at least to me. When Jesus says, let the greatest become, what would you expect him to say next? The least. But that's not what he says. He says, let the greatest become the youngest. And it was true in the ancient world that greater age equaled greater status, privilege, and reverence. In my experience and and in conversations in, in Taiwan, I think this is also the case there. It's not so much here in the West where we regularly mistreat and belittle our elderly, but this really resonates in Asian culture, in Taiwan's culture. Age still carries some weight, some gravity, some respect. The older people expect certain accommodations and deference, and from what I've seen and experienced, they get it. Not for me personally, because I'm not old yet. But age equals respect, deference, and status. You can see this, by the way, and you may have never seen this on a bus or train here, but if the seats are filled and an old person gets on, guess what happens? People start popping up. People tell other people, get up, there's there's an old person over there. They tell them to get up. It's all over that culture. But Jesus says that disciples are to become like those who have no cultural claim to status, the youngest. Those who have no right to demand anything and exist only to do the will of those older. This was and is in some places still shockingly countercultural. And to heighten the contrast, he adds that if they are to become true leaders, then they must become like servants. And to highlight this point, Jesus asks them a question and points them to his own example in verse 27. So Jesus continues to patiently instruct them in verse 27 by using his own example of service. He asks them this rhetorical question. Who is greater, the one serving or the one being served? With the immediate obvious answer, the one being served. Imagine with me for a minute, and this may be harder for some of you, that you are a guest at a banquet for President Obama. And you see an anonymous waiter repeatedly just standing right next to him, filling his, his wine glass. As you watch this happen, who would you say is more important? And don't let your political ideology influence your answer. Who would you say is more important? Obama is more important. But Jesus says it may seem that way, but what did I just do for you? And he didn't just fill their glass. He took on the appearance of a common slave and performed the terrible, menial, terribly menial and degrading task of washing their dirty, stinking feet. Jesus says, the world says, greatness is found in being served by others. My example shows you this cannot be the case in my kingdom. Paul speaks of this. Same truth in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, when he encourages his readers to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let me ask you a question. Would Jesus have been wrong to rebuke the disciples at this point? No, you can, you can talk, no. Would God himself have been in the wrong for letting the thankless, 
hard-hearted disciples absolutely have it? No. Instead of doing that, what does he do? He gives them grace. He teaches them like little children. He gently, do you, do you, I mean, you, you sort of follow as we read it. He's so gentle as he teaches them. It's not hard. He gently corrects their wrong thinking and gives them examples and word and deed that they can follow. Chances are that the, the weight of what Jesus did and said here was a bit lost on them at first. But this scene, these words of Jesus will definitely come back to them as Jesus was killed and resurrected in just a short time. This teaching that Jesus gives them here is going to form the basis for a ministry that we know in Acts absolutely turns the world upside down. And if Jesus' response to their argument ended there, it would be enough. But listen in awe at what he says next. Because he doesn't just not rebuke them. He doesn't just gently, patiently teach them. You ready for this? He actually commends them. In verse 28, Jesus says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And Jesus wasn't here just making a statement of fact. I'm just going to throw out a little truth for you here. This is, this is a commendation of the disciples because they really had stayed with Jesus through some tough times. Back in Luke 9, when somebody said they wanted to follow Jesus, Jesus responded by saying, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They spent their time with the homeless man. And they stayed with him. This is what the 12, now 11, had stayed around for. Yes, they got to be with Jesus. Yes, they got to see amazing things and hear amazing teaching, much of which we don't even know. And though the price was small in comparison with what they received, make no mistake, there was a price for them following Jesus. It cost them. And they stuck with him. Whatever their shortcomings and small faith, these men have remained faithful to Jesus. They have stayed with him and by him through everything. And rather than attacking their sinful desire for preeminence, what does Jesus do? He reminds them of what they've done well. So he doesn't rebuke them. He gently instructs them. Jesus doesn't remind them of their repeated failures. Instead, he commends them for what they have done well. I, I, can't, I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but there's more. Because what Jesus does next, if, if commending them just blows our minds, what he does next defies explanation as he overwhelmingly rewards them. He says in verse 29 and 30, And I assign to you... As my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Boy, for you eschatological nerds, we could spend a long time talking about this. I hope I didn't offend anybody with the nerd comment. What is the nature of the kingdom? What's Jesus talking about here? Oh, there's a, I believe there's a near and far fulfillment of the promise. The kingdom is here. Because Jesus is here. 
And the kingdom is coming in its fullness one day in the future. By the way, what is needed to have a kingdom? You need a ruler, you need subjects, and you need a domain. And in the near fulfillment, the ultimate ruler is Jesus. And he uses his disciples to be his rulers and founders of his church. The subjects are those who follow him. And the location is the church or the hearts of those who believe. And the far eschatological fulfillment, the ultimate ruler still is Jesus. And apparently, in some way, these 12 will rule with him in the millennial kingdom. So, are you ready for this? The very thing that the disciples are angling for is exactly what Jesus gives them. Does that make sense to you? Is that shocking to you? They're arguing about preeminence and greatness. And Jesus says, guess what? You're all going to be great. You're all going to be rulers. Staggering. But between this Passover night and the founding and the growth of the church, between this night and the future millennial kingdom, much, much is going to change in the hearts of these men, these future rulers. No longer will they arrogantly and with self-seeking motives pursue power. Jesus' teaching here and in other places, and his example is going to take root in their hearts. And they will become the leaders Jesus promises. Why? because of the grace that he shows them right here in this passage. They argue about position. Jesus patiently teaches them. They fight for superiority. He commends them. They ignore his words repeatedly, and he rewards them with the promise that they will reign with him. Let that sink in for a second. As I studied this passage now a few months ago, I couldn't help but reflect on my relationship with my own children and be reminded how unchristlike I am so often in my response to their behavior and their sin. Now, please don't listen to what I'm saying or about to say and think I'm arguing for a no-discipline home. If you know me and my wife, you know that's not true. The most great, and my kids will testify. The most gracious thing you can do many times is to lovingly and patiently discipline, spank your children. But I can't help but think, and maybe if you're a father or a mother, I can't help but think how poorly I model Jesus' grace to my children. Do I gently, gently instruct them? Do I commend what is good in them? Do I give them extravagant and undeserved gifts? Did the, by the way, did the disciples deserve to be commended and to be promised this, this wonderful promise of, of reigning with Jesus? Did they deserve that? Please say no. No. Do I do that with my own children? Do you? But it's not just children. Maybe you think, well, I don't have kids. This doesn't apply to me. This is sort of a side application, I know, but it's not just children. What about the other relationships in your life? Your wives, your husbands, your friends, your coworkers, those above and beneath you, those with whom we have a mentoring relationship. 
How do you how do you interact with them? Do you gently instruct when it's time to do that? Do you commend what's good? Do you look for what's good and commend that? Do you give gracious gifts? Maybe you remember from last week what Psalm 103, 13 through 14 says of God. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And I wonder if sometimes we forget that we and those around us, our children, our friends, our co-workers, our parents, we forget that we are made of dust. But what's evident in this passage is that Jesus never forgot this. And he interacted with his disciples accordingly. So why would I say this is such a grace-filled response by Jesus? Well, maybe you're like me and you think, gracious Look, it's not gracious. He can't start over now. It's too near the end. So he's just making do with what he has. He's about to be crucified, and so he's stuck with these guys. <laughs> he has to try to teach them the best he can. He's just, he's just trying to make the best of a bad situation here. Well, that might be valid if these men hadn't shown their lack of faith and abundant pride throughout their entire time with Jesus. Jesus knew these men. He knew what they were made of. And that's the very reason he chose them. So he would receive the glory. Jesus has plans for these men. And so he's patient with them. He's overwhelmingly, almost immodestly gracious to them. It's crazy grace here. And it's Jesus' grace toward them that will win the day and that will change their hard hearts. So why wouldn't I spend the bulk of this sermon about this text talking about the nature of leading and the necessity of serving the body of Christ, the church. Is that unimportant? No, it's not unimportant. But here's what I know. A sermon focused on what you must do will have at best some short-term results. For a while, if I were to hammer home, this is what a servant leader looks like, and it's this point, it's this point, you would say, I got some things to do, I got a checklist to mark off. And probably, knowing this church, there's a lot of you that would just hit it hard. And for a while, you either because of guilt or genuine desire, you would do more. You would do better. Mike would be happy. Mark would be happy. Ronaldo would be happy. You'd find ways to serve this church as a whole, ways to reach out and serve others. And things would look good for a little while. But if it's your effort that you're relying on, if it's your checking off a thing, it's going to fail. It's not going to last. There will be no persistence. By the way, that's a lesson that Peter will learn in a major way in the coming verses. I'd like to preach a message. Maybe if I have to say it another week, I can preach on that. But here's the thing. If you're gripped by Jesus' teaching and his example, if your heart is changed as we view this asymmetrically gracious response to the disciples' ugliness, if you can hear Jesus' countercultural teaching on leading and serving, if you can see how Jesus responded in gracious compassion to these hard-headed and hard-hearted disciples, it will change you. It will change you from the inside out. And as you and I understand and experience this grace, God enables us to respond to it with our lives, to love each other 
to put one another first, to know that God will reward us like he rewarded the disciples. If we can just understand and accept the kind of grace that Jesus shows here in this passage, if we are changed by this, the people around Grace Bible Church of Tampa, the people around each of you will have no choice but to notice the difference. Not, note, not taking notice of us, but taking note of our amazing, gracious, and compassionate Savior. Our Savior who will absolutely revolutionize people's lives and change their hearts. A Savior that can make us into a community, no matter how small or big, that makes him look glorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we've looked at how gracious you were to your disciples, that we will learn from that. Lord, help us to know that that grace that you poured out didn't stop with them, 